Welcome back to the Marketing Moment with DB Dynamo. As we mentioned in our last episode, we went through a not only a, a name change, but a little bit of a rebrand into our, our core business as well. So we talked a lot about this at a surface level. If you guys, we don't talk a lot about ourselves on this podcast, but if you've been listening in the past, you know that we're an e-commerce agency focusing on brands that scale products for the brain or the body unofficially. If your customers eat it, learn it, or wear it, we help you sell it. We haven't told everybody you guys, I guess, were insiders in that regard that a name change and a rebrand was coming with it. And so we're excited to be DB Dynamo. And in perhaps a future episode, we'll tell you a little bit more about what that means for, for us, but also for you as listeners and understanding the expertise that hopefully that's why you're here is to learn about e-commerce marketing and, and getting better at it. And, and also learning some of the things that we ourselves are, are learning with our brands. This is anybody proclaiming to be an expert in this space is kind of a liar because what worked one day does not always work the next. So we were perpetual students with an openness to learning, as you guys probably are, what it's going to take to stay ahead of the curve. So without further ado, we are going to talk about uh, today, as you know, we always start with our digital dash and a couple of headlines, but the entree, our core segment today, we're going to talk about the loss of data. We talked a lot about iOS 14, but with that loss of data comes new digital spending trends. And we kind of want to illuminate some of that for you to see where other marketers are going and potentially get some insight as to where you could be going. But before we get there, as I mentioned, the digital dash. Nicole, welcome back. We missed you and we are happy to have you take this away. So tell us what's going on. So our first headline of today is about TikTok. Uh, TikTok just launched Spark ads. And what does that mean for marketers? This article is actually via Adweek. Um, long story short, TikTok's news ad option will allow brands to capitalize on popular content. So instead of blindly trying to create an ad that feels more like a TikTok and hoping that users bite, they will be trying to create an ad that feels more like a TikTok that creates or curates a safer marketing strategy by observing the virality of organic content before spending. Essentially, this is like a boosted post for TikTok. You all know how boost posted or boosted posts work given the tactics that are already available for us on Facebook. Once a piece of organic content goes live, an advertiser can then put dollars against it and optimize it for page followers, page views, traffic, what have you. So Spark ads will also include objective options like paid followers, likes and shares. Again, it's a boosted post. Um, from that, users can also access either the music that was used in the ad or the brand's account page with the click of a button, which was previously only offered on user-generated videos. What are your guys' thoughts on this piece? I'm going to defer to Julia on this one, who is our resident TikToker. I, I do have my thoughts on it because normally I would be against it, but maybe I'm giving away my answer. I think it makes the most sense for TikTok. Um... I think that brands sometimes have a very hard time with the sort of casualness and the virality of, of TikTok content. They kind of miss the mark, like they don't get it. And then it's kind of apparent that they don't get it. But sometimes, uh, you know, you see, you see content that does well months after it was posted because now something has changed culturally and now it's funny. So I think this will be a good bet for advertisers on TikTok. Mm -hmm. So my, my take, I agree, but my take is slightly different, which is because of the nature of TikTok, we make some generalizations here on these episodes, it's not necessarily a, a consistent proven performer when it comes to driving sales, right? So that's the part that I think some brands have had success with. We've seen that. We've also seen just as many kind of struggle to figure that part out, but we do know TikTok gets a lot of eyeballs. So it was kind of always looked at as a cheap metric. Nicole, you, you talked about Facebook when they debuted it as... Mm -hmm just like an easy way for them to mint money. And frankly, that's ultimately what this is about for TikTok too, is taking the lower sophistication level of, of advertisers and getting them a way that they can see some instant gratification from their ads. 
And if it's easy, people are going to spend money on it if that's what they want. So it's a money-making venture first. Let's, let's agree on that. But the reason I think it's actually beneficial perhaps to brands on TikTok too is, is kind of what Julia was talking about. The viral nature of this channel is, is why people are so interested in it. It's fun. It's engaging. And I think the boosted button will allow people to take strategic bets on the things that are already working for them where they've seen some, you know, we've done this a few times uh, to pat ourselves on the back. Julia is the star of our TikTok channel. We've got several videos that's got, that have gotten over a hundred thousand views. So in theory, we could say, man, we've really caught lightning in a bottle. We do want people to know about our TikTok cap capabilities. This is a great way to kind of showcase that a little bit and, and put some more light on us and, and maybe truly go viral or as you were semi-viral before and and see what it gets you. So I don't think it's going to be a game changer for businesses, you know, making you know, millions of dollars. But if there's an opportunity where they're able to integrate their product into a video that does, um, you know, go viral and latch on and they put some more ad dollars behind it, then I'm happy to be wrong. So I, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a really good test for them, but it's also about them making money. And I think it's going to make them a lot of money. Awesome. Um, that kind of brings us to our next headline, which is a similar new platform uh, the last two years or so. So it's about Clubhouse. This one is via TechCrunch. The headline reads, Clubhouse is finally out of beta and open to everyone. And something that's very hot and on our radar. Um, anyone can now join Clubhouse. It's no longer a waitlist slash invite only system. So after a long iOS only stretch, the company introduced an Android app in May. Now Clubhouse reports they've reached 10 million Clubhouse downloads in the Android's apps or Android apps first two months of being alive, which is amazing. So early in July, Clubhouse then introduced a text-based chat feature called Back Channel that broadened the voice-centric apps focus for the first time. Um, in June, Clubhouse was installed 7.7 .7 million times across both iOS and Android devices. Um, and it's an impressive number that's definitely in conflict with the perception that the app might not have staying power. That quote is direct from the article. What are your guys' thoughts in terms of longevity? I actually disagree with, uh, with that quote entirely that 7.7 .7 million times uh, show, like, is against the perception that the app might not have staying power. Uh, that's when you look at the type of growth that other channels are having, I'm, I'm not as impressed by that. And, and I think TikTok, I'm sorry, well, yeah, sort of TikTok, <laughs> but, but other channels like, like Spotify jumping on what, you know, what their iteration of Clubhouse is, I think beat them to the punch. Clubhouse is really kind of really slow played. I mean, they had momentum months ago and because of the limits with, with Android devices and stuff like that, I, I want to say that their, their hot streak faded a little bit. I'm not saying that, you know, their light is out, but I think they had a moment for, you know, where they could have really doubled down and gone for it. And instead they slow played it. Other channels picked up capabilities that are similar to it. And it's, it's not as hot and buzzy as it was. So, I, you know, good for them on, on making, you know, make it finally public and available to everyone. But I think they missed a critical window of opportunity that I'm not writing them off entirely, but I, I think it was a little too much too late in, in that regard. And other people are taking their lunch. Hot take. Julia, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm over Clubhouse. I downloaded it, got an invite. <laughs> I didn't listen to a single thing. Maybe that makes my opinion irrelevant, but I just think that they the exclusivity of the whole waitlist system, they did it too long that it was just like, you, you got to give it up after a month or two and let everyone join. And I think that they messed up there. And mm -hmm. But I'm glad to see that they're doing well on Android. So good for them. Happy for them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that was efficient. I like that. We are going to get right to the core segment of today. As we mentioned, 
With the loss of data comes new digital spending trends, and we're here to tell you what those are. So I'm going to kick things off for us here, and we'll make a generalization at the very top. And really, the last few years have seen a larger focus on social media. In particular, the big players, obviously Facebook, and by virtue of that, Instagram. But that's where a lot of ad dollars have shifted and the, how you ended up with a two-player race, essentially, in digital for a long time between Google and Facebook. But but that's shifting. And we talk a lot about COVID-19 on this podcast because it's the most current thing that changes an even a rapidly changing industry even more rapidly. And CMOs who've, who were surveyed in, in February of this year, this comes from eMarketer, they're reporting that their clients are allocating even more of their dollars toward content marketing this year. And so, you know, you see social media is still important, um, but I think the, the growth of that has slowed a little bit. When you look at this chart, you see the number one target, I'm sorry, the number one spending objective for, for the respondents of these CMOs is 25.4% are choosing content marketing, followed pretty closely by organic search at 23.8. But then there's a, a sizable drop off where you see paid search and e-commerce, which I think is a little bit nebulous. It's not really defined what, what fits into e-commerce, but then email and social marketing level off underneath that at around 10% each. So content marketing appears to be you know really at the core of what, what marketers are focusing on. And I'm gonna take a guess here as to why Nicole's got a couple bullets on this as well, but the iOS 14 rollout has been substantial. We knew that that was coming and the inability to track all of the things that you used to be able to track, or, or at least to a lesser extent, I think has forced marketers to kind of come back to a place where they relearn their old habits. And that is people buy brands that they understand, that they identify with, that understand their needs and content marketing done well has never really failed at that. And, and I hate speaking in absolutes like all or never, but content marketing is the core of advertising, right? If you have something to say, you find different ways to package it and sell it to the right people at the right time. And you may not always get the attribution that you want, but if you have good content in the right places where your customers live and breathe, that dividend is gonna pay off. You may not see it in a, you know, the last click attribution that makes your, your CFO happy, but you will see it as you zoom out and look at the overall marketing mix. So. It doesn't surprise me that content marketing is at the top of that. We'll talk a little bit more about what content marketing looks like, but but I do want to give Nicole a chance to talk a little bit more about how this first party data pivot um, it has probably really paid into or played into this. Okay, yeah, sure. I will take it off from here and then we'll have Julia jump in with our other stats from Invoca. Um, so we did a lot of research on this topic. Uh, some interesting points we did find were 82% of marketers plan to increase their use of first party data. So this is something that we've been trying to hone in on for our own clients, even within our agency. Um, with the shift in privacy updates in a cookie-less world, brands really have to adapt to collecting their own data to then drive their own sales, their own funnels, things of that nature. So the second kind of supporting point here that we extracted from the article was, since third-party data or presents privacy concerns, as mentioned, marketers are tapping into more of their internal data to inform targeting and personalization. Personalization is something that's also very hot that we're definitely going to get into within our data points. Um, but the second one is leading marketers are also leveraging first party data from consumer phone calls. So this definitely plays into paid search. Um, mobile ads drove over 162 billion phone calls in 2019. It's a common misconception that because the world is becoming more digitized, phone calls have lost their importance, which as we know, really isn't true. Uh, this statistic proves that mobile ads and click to call features are driving more calls to businesses than ever before. 
even with Google's updates to Google ads and creating more local ads, which is a new tactic or strategy on the Google ads dashboard. It's something that definitely helps promote those click to call ratios. Um, do you guys have any thoughts before I hand it off to Julia? Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by the second one. I think your, your points have kind of been reinforced in a lot of episodes about the first party data we talk. I mean, the one part I want to maybe disagree with, not you, but is the, the source is that like the 82% of marketers who plan to increase their use of first party data. My question is, what, why weren't you doing that even sooner, right? Like the, the True. taking away third party data, third party data was never as strong as first party data. So I think it's, um, I think it's kind of silly to think that that's being increased when that should have always been the priority, but I'm off my soapbox. But the, but the phone call element I think is, is unique in the sense that I believe brands or, or businesses, whatever you want to label yours, that have need-based solutions, whether it's urgent or, or the solution is a little bit complex, the phone is a huge, huge tool for them. Um, you know, like if you're a plumber, right? The, the plumbing breaks, like you're not, you're not gonna try to you know, talk to a chat feature. You're not gonna try to like leave an email and have someone come back to you in, you know, in 48 hours, like, nope, it's broken now, need help now. <laughs> I'm gonna get on the phone and I need to talk to a person who's gonna, who's gonna get someone at my house. And, you know, you can also see that very similarly, perhaps with, uh, we talked about Salesforce a couple episodes ago as well, but that's a pretty complex tool as well. You can get familiar with it by doing an online sign up for a free trial, for example, but the, for the more complex things, if you're actually interested in buying it and rolling it out, you need to be on the phone with somebody who, who can understand, you know, conversations instead of just a chat feature or, you know, things that you download. So it's funny, we, we don't talk a lot about the phone, but I think it's incredibly valuable for, for brands that, that do tap into it if they have the, the right business case for it. So some of our other statistics that we pulled from Invoca include um, a recent study where omni-channel campaigns saw a 19% engagement rate while single channel saw just a 5% engagement rate. So consumers own more devices than ever before and often bounce between channels during the purchasing process. This is obvious. You see something on your phone, but you might buy it on your computer. Marketers need to keep this in mind as they develop their campaigns. The second stat is that omnichannel campaigns produce a 250% higher rate of purchase frequency than single channel campaigns do. So keeping your brand top of mind across numerous channels will drive more revenue. Duh. Uh, and the last stat is that customer retention rates are 90% higher for omnichannel campaigns than for single channel campaigns. So customers are more loyal to brands that engage with them across channels. You see them everywhere, you're gonna be more loyal. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I almost want to like just use this as the mic drop moment for for some brands that we've all probably encountered as marketers who who have who come to the table with one thing in mind, which is like, oh yeah, well, I want to run Facebook ads. Cool. <laughs> but that's that's a place, right? Like, and it's not the only place. Context matters as well, right? When I'm on Facebook, I'm not necessarily looking to purchase uh, a piece of you know, software, for example, like maybe you'll really surprise me with, with a great piece of creative and I'll pay attention, but it, you know, omni-channel has always won. And, but the problem, I think, especially in the data attribution, heavy madness that's happened over the past several years is that people assume that if they can't track it, it's not real. Or that mm -hmm. like, if the, the last click doesn't drive to the purchase, then it doesn't count. And that's not at all how real people shop. I had a conversation with, um, 
with a friend whose whose wife is launching a um, an apparel brand for for boys, and we had that conversation. I'm like, I've never met a customer who had said, you know what, I bought that thing on Facebook because I know that I was uh, my ad was served to me because I was optimized for purchase. Right, like that that doesn't happen. That doesn't enter the customer's mind. What they care about is is being able to not ignore a brand. The, the brand is is present omni-channel in channels where where they spend their time and and continue to stay top of mind so there's a reason you know apple has billboard advertising and tv advertising right like it's one of the most ubiquitous brands on the entire planet but they're still advertising on multiple channels why because the second you forget about them the second they start someone else remembers samsung and and that's exactly what these brands need to you know to be considering so none of these stats surprise me and you know when you look at the, like the ability to produce a 250% higher rate of purchase frequency than a single channel campaign. Hello. Um, that's, that's a no brainer. And as, as Julia said, duh, and the customer retention rates, I think that's even more important, right? People think I'll generalize again, but a lot of times email is looked at as, Oh, once I've got the customer, then all I've got to do is email them and I'm going to email them and email them and they're going to stay around forever or whatever. But this is evidence that, yeah, email obviously is incredibly important, but, running any omni-channel campaigns after the fact, even for customers that you already have across multiple channels is a part of keeping them engaged in the same way that you were when you were trying to acquire them in the first place. And this is especially true for, for e-com brands like the ones that we talk about, skincare brands, for example, or apparel brands or accessories brands or footwear brands. You have multiple, sometimes hundreds, maybe even thousands of SKUs available to these people and they're not gonna see all of it in email. But this mm -hmm. dynamic, content that you can put out through, you know, through targeted ad campaigns on multiple channels is really effective because it's a perpetual experience of rediscovery. If there are hundreds of other products, then, then there's always something new and you have the benefit of the added brand recognition on top of it already. So I'm, I, I get a little hot about this one because I, I think a kitten loses its uh, whiskers. I don't know what, what is it? Kitten loses its wings. I'm, I'm really coming up with a bad metaphor. <laughs> angel, an angel. Yeah. Wow, I'm really, really struggling yeah. on this one. An angel loses its wings when a client, you know, just comes in or, or even a brand says, oh, I just want to run, you know, Facebook ads. Yeah, you can do it, but, but it's not, it's not going to get you where you think you want to go. I do think that the added omni-channel experience does even help existing customers who are recent purchasers kind of validate their purchase, right? Like the more you see it, the more you feel like it's more credible and you feel good about it. Um, it also gives the opportunity to upsell and cross-sell to those brand new customers. So eventually you could be increasing the lifetime value of the customer essentially, but it's my two cents. Yeah, I, I think that's super critical. And, that, and, and that's why you're in business, right? If, if all you do is acquire new customers and then you never sell them anything again, you're, you're eventually gonna run out of customers and, and revenue. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not a sustainable <laughs> business practice. And th this is evidence that Omnichannel works after purchase as well in order to keep that, that engine going. 100%. Angelie, do you want to wrap up with our last stat? Yeah. So our last stat is that 80% of consumers say that they are more likely to do business with a company if it offers personalized experiences. So if you don't offer personalized uh, phone call experiences, you're leaving revenue on the table. Yeah. Well, I saw in Instapage is the source on that one. They called out the phone call specifically, <clears throat> which I know ties to what we were speaking about a little bit earlier in the episode too. And, but I hate like patting ourselves on the back, but we've also talked a lot about the value of personalization too. And it's, it's sort of a nebulous thing. I guess personalization seems kind of obvious, which is like, 
it's for me. I'm, I'm the person I want it to be unique to me. We talked about quizzes and things like that, that are really useful for um, a tool like Jebit, for example, is really useful for you plug it into a skincare site, you enter your skincare type and all sorts of things. And then you get product outputs or even content outputs for things that are specific to your actual need. So that is, is obviously personable uh, personalization. I'm sorry, but it's at scale. So everyone's getting a personalized experience, but I think there's other ways for personalization to feel like personalization when it's not actually personalization. And some of that can be really warm touches. That's not a, a technical term, but just <laughs> touches that make a customer feel warm throughout the process of, of shopping that allow them to be feel seen or like a brand is acknowledging them. I think one of the biggest missed opportunities in, in a lot of mar uh, e-commerce marketing, I had this conversation with a founder uh, based in Canada a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the fact that after purchase, they have a, a very unique email uh, campaign structure that's that's very warm to them. So, like it talks about re-inviting them into the brand story and things like that, thanking them for their purchase, reminding them of where those dollars are going for other things that they're trying to invest in for social good, um, you know, sharing with them more reviews post-purchase and and preempting them for how to get ready for the delivery of their product and and setting expectations for how to experience and enjoy the product. When you think about you know customer service and the issues that they probably deal with on a day-to-day -day basis for tons of brands, I will bet you that the brands who have the highest issues with, with customer service that are not related to, you know, just having a poor uh, quality in terms of the product that they have. But if they have good quality, I bet you the thing that they're missing is an opportunity to properly set expectations going in. Um, and I think that's a huge opportunity that's missed from, from personalization as well. I know I went on a slight tangent there, but that type of information that you can provide is, is incredibly useful. And if you cross the line or, or rather cross the boxes, the put the checks in the boxes, I'm really messing these up today on the things that a lot of other marketers are not doing, that feels like personalization to the user. And, and those are the things that stick out and make people come back. Solid. And that pretty much concludes our episode, unless anyone has any final thoughts before we head into the marketing nozzle and the marketing malfunction for today. Oh, I think those are the final thoughts. I always get really excited about this part. <laughs> <laughs> it is probably the best part of this segment or the show. Let's be real. Okay. So our marketing model today, it's a feel good story. It's actually a good one. Kudos to Julia for sourcing per usual. Um, new JCPenney clothing line for kids with disabilities has been launched um, or it's being preempted. It's not launched. I misspoke. So JCPenney is introducing a new private label brand called Thereabouts. It's a line of fashionable clothing for children that includes products for those with disabilities. The clothing brand put thought into the fabrics that it used to make the garments with an effort to accommodate children with tactile defensiveness or touch sensory sensitivity. That thinking also extends to implementing sensory friendly seaming, which includes essentially eliminating tags and incorporating easy access openings, which is great. So the line will be available this fall and $1 from each item sold goes to the nonprofit communities and schools to fund programming that helps at risk students stay in school. So all around a feel good story. We like that one. Good work, Julia. It's kind of hard to find these. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. I, I think that's fantastic. And we, we just finished talking about personalization, right? If you have that mindset as the brand, you're going to find opportunities like this hiding in plain sight. And this is not necessarily personalization. This is nichization, perhaps, uh, but it feels the same way, like I said. And I, th I think this is fantastic. That's something that, you know, that they should feel great about. Same. And that brings us, unfortunately, to our marketing malfunction. We have to provide one. Usually this is up for grabs, but I think this is a real one this time. 
So Molson Coors, which is a corporate for a Coors uh, beer, as most people know here, um, they're actually ending production of Coors Seltzer for event reports. So our previous story was actually from Adweek. I do want to mention that. This story is from marketingdive.com. So Coors Beverage is ending production of Coors Seltzer, citing a memo from the company to its wholesalers. The Chicago-based beverage maker has asked wholesalers to sell the remaining inventory they have in stock and discontinue completely from there. It allowed the company to focus on more popular hard seltzers in its portfolio, such as Topo or Topo, Chico Hard Seltzer, and Nutrient Infused Vizzy. I will admit I have had Vizzy before. It tastes like urine. It's inappropriate, but it's true. I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> I have not had Warmer, which is Chico Hard Seltzer. I am a big White Claw girl. I'm very excited that White Claw Delta and Iced Tea. I haven't had it yet. So if you guys have had it, definitely let me know. Keep me posted. Um, but I will say there's so many seltzer options in the market right now not everyone needs one but everyone's like trying to do one i feel like it's very hard to come ahead of white claw people try but they fail like there's so many like viv and bond like what happened to them if you see something's bogo it's probably failing in Publix. i just want to put that out there i'm controversial yeah. when these malfunctions so let me know <laughs> I, I think they're like the 98 degrees to the backstreet boys and in sync if if i oh, can well, myself right 100 there yeah. you are right it's like everybody <laughs> wanted to be a boy band you know when it when it was hot but like there were only there was really only going to be room for a few players but like an o-town an o-town yeah a little more o-town 98 degrees still made it um but yeah more, more of an o-town yeah because they're look they made space for themselves and but honestly yeah, I guess I'm actually going to call it um, not a malfunction in the sense that they had the sense to get out when they got out. I think there are still new Seltzer brands coming onto the market now and others who've probably already seen the writing on the wall, but just don't know how to read it. <laughs> there's, there's just not enough space for all of them. And, and I agree, like that market has reached its cap and only the true players are going to keep, you know, holding on to market share. And even they might struggle to hold on to the same market share that they had. Because uh, I just don't think the sell. I think the seltzer thing is over a little bit, not entirely, but it's just it's reached its peak and it's not going back to it, at least not anytime soon. I am wondering though, are more people drinking these hard seltzer options versus beer? Because people are so much more health conscious as time has gone on, and a lot of people are looking looking for the low calorie kind of options. I am wondering if hmm. it is popular than beer, at least the last two years. Like white claw sales. I would like to look up those stats. Right. Maybe that'll be my problem. Later. Maybe that'll, yeah, I we'll do that. And on a future episode, we'll tell you what we found. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Maybe next summer. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Next summer. All right. Well, that is a wrap up for this week's episode. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something with us and we'd love to hear your comments in either direction, whether, uh, whether you loved it, hated it, or did learn something, or if you have questions for future episodes, don't forget to share with your peers if you did enjoy it and subscribe as well. If you'd like to get future episodes sent directly to you when they drop, which is every Tuesday. But just in case you forget, subscribe to your podcast wherever you get them. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks again.